Good morning, everyone. It's Monday, April 8th. Welcome to the So What Pod. We've leveled up on this episode. As you probably noticed, we have music. Not only that, but we're now officially on iTunes as the So What Pod. So be sure to subscribe. I'm also excited to share that I had the opportunity to interview Olga Redko on Quebec's religious symbols ban for this episode of the pod. Ms. Redko is a civil litigator with particular experience acting for clients in a variety of administrative, regulatory, and constitutional law matters. More on her experience and, of course, her interview after the headlines. On this day in history. Yesterday marked 25 years since the beginning of the Rwandan genocide, in which 800,000 Tutsi Rwandans and moderate Hutus were slaughtered over the course of 100 days. The killings wiped out nearly 70% of the Tutsi population in the country. Romeo Dallaire was on the ground in Rwanda when the massacre began. In charge of a small United Nations peacekeeping force meant to oversee a truce between the Hutu and Tutsi. In the months leading up to the genocide, Dallaire noticed the warning signs, intercepting radio transmissions and discovering arms caches. He repeatedly warned the UN as well as other world leaders. Even after the killings began, the leadership at the United Nations and of other countries like France and the US refused to intervene, citing an article in the UN Charter as grounds for not wanting to risk the combat deaths of UN peacekeepers or troops. During this period, Dallaire was frequently reminded that his mandate in Rwanda was to oversee a truce, not to engage in combat. Dallaire returned to Canada, marked by the mission and the international community's failure to intervene. He has been candid about the decades of therapy he has sought to overcome his guilt, as well as his multiple suicide attempts. Over the years, he has founded the Child Soldiers Initiative to prevent the recruitment and use of child soldiers. He is also a senior fellow at the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights and the co-director of the Will to Intervene Project. On white nationalism in Canada. On Friday, the Prime Minister was at an event in Toronto to announce federal funding for community housing in Toronto's East End. The Canadian yellow vest showed up to the event and sought to drown out Trudeau's words by using a megaphone to yell that Trudeau, quote, panders to minorities and the United Nations. A side note, though, one of importance. The media has failed to both distinguish the Canadian Yellow Vest movement from the French one and to call them out for what they are. The consistent use of the term hecklers to describe a movement led by white nationalists is an irresponsible misrepresentation. To give you a better idea, the French Yellow Vests organized on demands of a higher minimum wage, a higher pension, increased taxes on the wealthy, and a lower retirement age. The Canadian movement, on the other hand, although it began as, and still contains elements of, pro-pipeline and oil and gas industry supporters, it has been co-opted by white nationalists and the far right. The Canadian Yellow Vest movement demonizes Muslims and immigrants, peddles Jewish conspiracy theories, denies the existence of climate change, has advocated for violence against elected officials, and embraces white nationalism and white supremacy. Legacy media's failure to call them out for what they are is not only baffling, it undermines the dangers that these groups pose to our society and, more tangibly, to our October election. The media's failure in this regard makes it okay for political parties to disregard these two, and to pander to the members of the movement as a legitimate voter base. On SNC-Lavalin, 
Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott were kicked out of the Liberal caucus on Tuesday as part of the ongoing SNC-Lavalin affair. Wilson-Raybould had previously announced that she had recorded a phone call between herself and former clerk of the Privy Council, Michael Wernick, during her time as Justice Minister. This recording, according to Wilson-Raybould, was meant to back up her claims that the PMO, Privy Council, and other high-ranking government officials had acted inappropriately in their, quote, pressure on her regarding the pending criminal charges against SNC. A few weeks ago, she had resigned from cabinet over the affair, to be followed by Jane Philpott, who did the same in solidarity. In the weeks since, both Wilson-Raybould and Philpott said they'd stay on as Liberal MPs and would be seeking re-election as Liberals in the fall. At the same time, though, they've been vocal about their dismay with the Prime Minister, and other Liberal MPs felt increasingly uncomfortable with their continued presence in caucus. Wilson-Raybould's announcement of the phone recording was a straw that broke the camel's back. In a statement on Wilson-Raybould and Philpott being kicked out of caucus, the Prime Minister said, quote, If a politician secretly records a conversation with anyone, it's wrong. When that politician is a cabinet minister secretly recording a public servant, it's wrong. And when that cabinet minister is the Attorney General of Canada secretly recording the clerk of the Privy Council, it's unconscionable. He continued, pointing out that the old Liberal Party was, quote, notorious for infighting and that they had been elected to do things differently. He also noted that political adversaries benefit when there are, quote, civil wars within parties. Wilson-Raybould and Philpott now both serve as independent MPs in the House of Commons. Since being kicked out of caucus, Wilson-Raybould has said that she stands by her version of events and that she has been courted by both the NDP and the Green. Andrew Scheer revealed that he received a letter from the Prime Minister's lawyer at the end of March threatening to sue Scheer for defamation over his assertion that the Prime Minister politically interfered with the criminal prosecution of SNC-Lavalin. Scheer has urged Trudeau to follow through with the suit, but has called it bullying on behalf of the Prime Minister. You may be asking yourself whether there's precedent for the Prime Minister to sue a member or leader of the opposition. Well, in 2008, then-Prime Minister Stephen Harper threatened to sue then-Liberal MP Stéphane Dion and then-Liberal Deputy Leader Michael Ignatieff for defamation too. The Liberals had accused Harper's Conservatives of intending to bribe a terminally ill independent MP with a million-dollar life insurance policy for his vote to topple the minority Liberal government in 2005. On Ontario's Cuts to Education Since Doug Ford and his Progressive Conservatives took office in Ontario in 2018, they have announced cuts to the province's education system left, right, and centre. Cuts to funding and programs, changes to the sex ed curriculum that brought it back to the dark ages, and an increase in class sizes are some of the reasons students from 600 schools across the province walked out of class on Thursday. The students organized on social media using the hashtag StudentsSayNo. On Saturday, teachers' unions from across the province and their supporters, numbering in the thousands, showed up to demonstrate on the lawn of Ontario's legislature in Toronto. Ford's cuts are set to include 3,400 teacher jobs. On Alberta's elections, Jason Kenney, formerly a federal MP and cabinet member, is leader of Alberta's new United Conservative Party, or the UCP. The party was born in 2017 by combining the province's Wildrose Party and the Progressive Conservative Association of Alberta. 
It is currently the official opposition to Alberta's governing party, the NDP, under Premier Rachel Notley. The province goes to the polls on April 19th. The UCP has been roiled in controversy since its inception. Between allegations of campaign financing and electoral fraud, currently under federal investigation by the RCMP, the claim that the party funded a quote-unquote kamikaze opposition candidate whose sole role was to attack one of Kenny's political rivals, the UCP has more recently had to deal with the views of some of its candidates. Two of the UCP's candidates resigned last month after their vocal white nationalist leanings came to light in the form of posts on social media. Most recently, in the spotlight, UCP candidate Mark Smith for his comparison of the LGBTQ community and pedophiles during a sermon he delivered at his church in 2013. He is still in the running. Polls currently put the UCP at a nine-point lead over the NDP. On PEI's elections. On the other side of the country, in a vastly different political climate, Prince Edward Island is headed to the polls on April 23rd. There, the Green Party, under Peter Bevan Baker, is leading by double digits. It could be the first time in Canadian history that the Green Party wins an election. The island is currently run by a Liberal government. This election is one to watch, both because it is unprecedented and because it could have ramifications for the rest of the country, not least in the federal election in the fall. When Justin Trudeau's Liberals came to power in 2015, a Liberal wave swept Atlantic Canada, both in terms of the MPs they sent to Ottawa and in terms of the premiers they elected. Political commentators at the time attributed the impact at the provincial level to the popularity of Trudeau and his party in 2015. A few years later, climate change is weighing heavily on voters' minds. Many have said that the 2019 federal election is going to be the climate election. It really now is a matter of do or die, especially so for a small island province in the Atlantic. The most recent report by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change said that the previously thought magic number of 1.5 degrees Celsius might not be a drastic enough cap to mitigate the catastrophic effects that climate change will have. The report released last week by Environment and Climate Change Canada said that our country is warming at twice the rate of the rest of the world. Before 2015, no Green candidate in PEI had come close to even winning a seat in the province. Now, they stand a serious chance at taking the whole election in a few weeks. Now for our interview with Olga Retko. Ms. Redko is a civil litigator with particular experience acting for clients in a variety of administrative, regulatory, and constitutional law matters. She has represented clients before all levels of court in Quebec and federally, including before the Supreme Court of Canada. Prior to joining Montreal boutique firm IMK in 2017, Olga served as a law clerk to the Honorable Clément Gascon at the Supreme Court of Canada. She is currently the president of the Administrative Law Section of the Canadian Bar Association, Quebec Division. Some of her most recent cases have included serving as counsel for the National Council of Canadian Muslims versus the Attorney General of Quebec in a challenge to provisions of the Act to foster adherence to state religious neutrality and, in particular, to provide a framework for requests for accommodation on the religious grounds in Bill 62 on the basis that it violates freedom of religion and the right to equality. What is Bill 21, and what makes it different from earlier attempts by other Quebec governments to pass similar bans on religious symbols in the public sector? 
So Bill 21 is uh, is called an act respecting the laïcité of the state, and it's basically a piece of legislation introduced by the government of Quebec, the, the government being the Coalition Avenir du Québec, that seeks to um, basically re- remove, well, it seeks to do two things. It seeks to first enforce religious neutrality in the state, and at the same time it seeks to remove signs of, of religion, including personal expression of religious beliefs, by prohibiting um, various various public employees in positions of authority from wearing religious symbols, as well as prohibiting any public employees from providing services with their face covered, which, generally speaking, I think is understood to be a prohibition on people who wear religious face covering. So, in terms of how different from past efforts of the Quebec government to pass bans on religious symbols, I, I would say that this proposed ban is the broadest we've seen by far since the kind of the, the, the charter of values that was floated by the by the um, Parti Québécois government that didn't really get off the ground. Um, contrary to Bill 62, which is legislation passed by the Liberal government and which is subject to court challenge, this impacts a wide variety of people in a huge range of positions and wearing a huge range of religious symbols as opposed to just, you know, one symbol or one group of people who, who are impacted. And we've seen a lot about the notwithstanding clause lately in the context of the government passing this bill. So what exactly does that mean? What kind of legal action will those affected be able to take? And will they still be able to use the argument of unconstitutionality? So the notwithstanding clause is a clause contained in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms that permits the government to pass a law, even if that law is is deemed to ultimately contravene the rights protected in the Canadian Charter. And I would add that the Quebec Charter of Human Rights and Freedoms, which which protects a lot of the rights that the Canadian Charter does, also contains a notwithstanding clause. So um, in this bill, the government is invoking both of these notwithstanding clauses up front, which, which, which the Premier has explicitly said is basically a way of uh, foreclosing any sort of legal challenge to this legislation. Um, now, what the actual impact of the notwithstanding clause is, uh, will be would be to foreclose a legal challenge to this law on the basis of Section 1 or Section 7 through 15, uh, sorry, 2 and Section 7 through 15 of the Canadian Charter, um, which is a lot of the rights that you would normally be raising to attack this sort of legislation, in particular equality rights and religious freedom rights. But I, I disagree with the Premier when he says that this is going to prevent a long and drawn-out battle before the courts, because there are other ways of attacking the constitutionality of legislation like this. Um, there are arguments based on the division of powers, which have been floated in the news over the past couple of days. There are arguments based on the unwritten principles of the Constitution. Um, there are international law arguments potentially to be made about even the use of the notwithstanding clauses in question. So it's, it's, it's very unlikely if not probably impossible, that the use of the notwithstanding clauses will actually prevent legal challenges. In your experience, kind of related to that, do these kinds of laws typically begin and end in the context to which they're applied, or do they tend to trickle over into other segments of society, especially as that relates to other minority groups or marginalized communities? Well, I think the first thing I would say is that in I've been very fortunate never to, to see this kind of law really in action, right? Because typically mm-hmm. in Canada, laws of this nature are, you know, their validity is challenged under the, the Canadian or the Quebec Charter in Quebec, uh, and if this law actually passes. And the courts have been very, very good about protecting individual liberties from excessive state intrusion and, for, and holding the state to, you know, a pretty significant uh, burden of proof when it comes to justifying these sorts of infringements. So... I don't think we've seen anything quite like this in recent years in Canada. But if you if you look at the example of France, where there is a ban, there's actually a much more severe ban on wearing religious symbols. Um, 
uh, both both for teachers, for example, in schools and for students in schools, actually, you'll find that the effects of those types of bans go beyond the, the particular context in which they're applied. So look at the school context. Just to give one example, uh, in France, the, the ban typically affects young Muslim women the most because the hijab is kind of the most obvious religious symbol. And uh, a recent study that came out uh, found that young women who, who are impacted by this ban actually tend to have lower um, scolarity rates, they, they don't finish schools often, they have more economic problems. So ultimately, the impact of this kind of legislation is to marginalize and exclude groups that are already minority groups in society and can have serious spillover effects in, to, to the ability of members of these groups to integrate and participate in society uh, in an equal and, and you know, full, wholesome way. Right. So ultimately, it would kind of have the opposite effect of what's intended in terms of, you know, if the idea is to further integrate these people into society, it would kind of have the opposite effect. I mean, that's basically what the example of France has shown us, yes. Mm-hmm. Right. So what does the time between now and it becoming or not becoming law look like? How imminent is that? Uh, well, the government has said that they, they intend to pass this law quickly. Um, there have been statements both from the minister, the, the premier and the minister of immigration who introduced this law that they want to pass this law before the parliamentary session uh, breaks in June. So we're not talking about a long drawn out session with lots of consultation here. We're talking probably about a matter of And the Minister for Public Safety has since backtracked on this statement, but initially she she said that the police would be the ones to enforce this law. How does something like that play out in practice? Honestly, I I don't know. I think that would be extremely uncharted waters. I mean, to to think for a second that in Canada, in any province in Canada, we could actually live a situation in which someone is called, someone calls the police on a person who is wearing a symbol of their face is honestly... It's impossible for me to imagine. I hope it never happens. Um, and I, I don't want to play out how, how that would work in practice because it, it, it's frankly unthinkable that in a society like ours, um, that could be the case. As we know, not a single riding on the island of Montreal was won by the CAQ. So what does that mean in terms of things like civic diso- civil disobedience? Does the government have any reason to take Montrealers seriously in this regard when they're protesting and demonstrating? Well, I mean, we've seen, what we've already seen is that um, various municipalities in Montreal, school boards in Montreal, have actually explicitly stated, if this law is passed, we're not going to apply it. So the, they've made their intentions clear, despite the government's warnings that there will be some sort of consequences if people don't apply the law. Um, and I, I think that, you know, the, the general impact of civil disobedience applied, I think that what this shows is that the, the communities that are home to the people who will be most impacted with this law, because Montreal is, is probably the most diverse community in all of Quebec, those communities are saying, no, we don't want this. This law is not for us. It doesn't help us. In fact, it, we find that it's discriminatory and we see no reason to implement it. And so, you know, do I think that the government should listen to these communities? Probably, because these, these are these are voters that they represent, even if they didn't win any writings in Montreal, these are still members of the Quebec public, you know, voting population, and, and ultimately members of Quebec society, and they're the ones who are faced on a much more day-to-day basis with individuals, employees who wear religious symbols, and what they're telling the government is, this is not a problem, you shouldn't be acting, this is discriminatory, it's wrong, and we're not going to do it. So, you know, it, I'm not going to come out and and, and condone or support civil disobedience per se, but I do think that the, the immediate impact of these communities um, and these government institutions should illustrate to the government that what they're saying is a problem 
doesn't seem to be perceived as such in the places where the impact of this law is most keenly going to be felt. And I mean, you kind of touched on this already, but even on the island of Montreal, there kind of seems to be a bit of a language discrepancy in response to the bill. So, for example, as you mentioned, the English Montreal School Board, the Lester B. Pearson School Board have both said they will not enforce the ban in their schools, whereas French school boards have yet to issue public statements on the matter. Um, do you have any comment on that and maybe how it, you know, impacts what an Anglophone Montrealer can do and how they feel uh, they can come out against this bill? I mean, I'm not sure, I, you know, it's, I, I don't know the representatives of the school boards. I don't know what's going on internally, so I, I can't really comment on why why that distinction exists or what's going on in, in francophone school boards versus anglophone school boards. Um, but I do think that any Montreal or anglophone or francophone who, who is perturbed by this bill, you know, they have they have the ability to write their representative. They have their ability to write um, to, to make their views known publicly through through social media and through regular media. And you know, I, I think as citizens, that's that that is ultimately all of our responsibility when we're faced with legislation that we think contradicts our deepest held social values. You know, our responsibility is not to stay silent, it's to speak up in the forms that are appropriate. And so for the last question, this kind of touches on what you're what you introed with in terms of uh, the Quebec Charter and it's kind of more philosophical in nature, but how does one reconcile the statement put forth by the government and that Bill twenty one intends to uphold traditional Quebec values? with the fact that it runs counter to the protection of rights and freedoms outlined in Quebec's charter. Can these two realities coexist? Well, I, I think that's actually a very difficult question. Um, so it's, it's interesting because the Quebec charter does set out very, very you know, strong protections for freedom of religion. And while the, the government of Quebec has taken the position that you know, freedom of religion protected by the Canadian charter doesn't reflect the local Quebec uh, context and Quebec's local needs, it's really hard to say that about about violations of the Quebec Charter, especially because the Quebec Charter, its existence precedes that of the Canadian Charter, and it's, it's been used for a much longer time to protect civil liberties within the province. So look, ultimately, I, I don't think these statements are reconcilable, and I think that so far the, you know, the, the Premier and all representatives of the, of the government haven't given a satisfactory answer as to how that can be the case. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to answer these questions and to provide some insights. Thanks very much. Well, thank you. And now for my personal concluding thoughts on the matter. I was recently discussing Bill 21 with a peer who, like me, grew up on the island of Montreal, surrounded by people speaking a variety of languages, belonging to a variety of faiths, and with a variety of skin colors. In our conversation, this person voiced their support for the bill, and singled out the burqa, saying, quote, it makes me uncomfortable. It's in this context that I wish to express my own take. It's no one's fault but your own that you are uncomfortable with difference. There was a time, in living memory, that black skin elicited a similar reaction. It makes me uncomfortable to have a black person in my doctor's waiting room. It makes me uncomfortable for a black woman to teach my kids at school. There was a time in living memory where universities such as McGill did not admit Jewish students or Japanese students because of their faith and ethnicity, respectively. History always, always gives us 2020 vision on discrimination. While there are still some who express these views, they are considered bigoted and by no means form the basis upon which laws are made. In fact, 
In the 1970s and 1980s, our provincial and federal governments enshrined certain values in our constitutions expressly because, even 30 and 40 years ago, these views were outdated. To those who believe that someone wearing a religious symbol in a position of authority is unable to set their religious convictions aside in the name of carrying out their role. The good thing about many public sector jobs is that the government lays out the rules of the game. Police officers enforce the law. Public school teachers teach the government's curriculum. You either enforce the law or you don't. And you either teach grade 9 science or you don't. If you're talking about bias, though, then, honey, I have bad news for you. We all have bias, whether or not we're wearing something on our heads. To those who support the bill because, quote, it goes against women's rights if she is forced to cover up for religion. Well, that just falls on my deaf ears. So many now seemingly care about women's rights. I have one thing to say on that, and that's I look forward to seeing you all at the next demonstration for women's rights. If there is one country in the world, even one city in the world, that should not only allow, but support the freedom to love who you love, wear what you wear, and believe what you believe, and not let any of those disqualify you from certain opportunities or public services, it is Canada and it is Montreal. That's it for today's pod. If you enjoyed it, subscribe and spread the word. Shout out to my brother, Cedric de Saint-Rome, for the music you've been hearing. I'll be back again next Monday with more content and interviews to help you give a damn about what's happening in Canadian current affairs. If you want to stay up to date in the meantime, follow us on Instagram at sowhatmedia.inc. Have a great week.